One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Oh my goodness, it's a busy one today. So there are going to be some changes ahead, but hopefully, Hopefully it's all for the good. Let me just give you a bit of an overview. So we're in November at the moment. So we're going to carry on as normal in November. Then in December, of course, it's Christmas time. So there's going to be Christmas books. We'll have the first episode in December will be Lauren and I, as we do every year, going through our favourite Christmas books. I'm really excited about that. And then the other weeks will be interviews with authors of Christmas books. And then I'll also throw in other books that aren't Christmassy for those of you who don't want to hear about Christmas at all. So don't worry about that. Then there's going to be a bit of a break. Normally it's two weeks. This time it's actually going to be six weeks. I just need a bit of a bit of a break because what I've realised this year is that not only have I taken on a little bit too much, I've lost the love of reading. I still love books and there are some that I read that I love, 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 but I'm not getting the time always to pick the books that I want to read. And like for book clubs that I'm in, I'm not able to really spend time reading those books and thinking about them. And so I don't have the excitement of discussing the books at the book clubs, you know, all of that. So just the six weeks off, then I'll be back beginning of February. And then if I can organise it, as soon as it settles down, it's just going to be one episode a week and probably just one author interview and probably about 30 minutes. So I'll still be here. I'm not going anywhere, but just calming it down a, bit, a little bit because there's lots of other stuff happening and uh, yes there's only so many bars of chocolate and biscuits I can eat uh, to keep me going so that's the plan hope that's okay with you let me know keep me posted but enough about that I've got some great books I've got some great books to talk to you about today all winners all winners in different ways so the books I'm going to talk to you about today are The Contest by Karen Hamilton, and Karen's coming on the podcast to talk to us about that book. Then the next one is called Joe Nothing's Guide to Life by Helen Fisher, and Helen is coming on to talk to us about that book. Then we've got The First 48 Hours by Simon Koenig. That's Simon's new book. Looking forward to telling you about that. I also listened on audiobook to The Kill by Jane Casey, and I listened to One Foot in the Grave by David Renwick as an audiobook. Well, as an audio drama. And uh, yes, I have things to say, but let's just get stuck in. So the first book is The Contest by Karen Hamilton. Let me read you the blurb on this one. Let me tell you about it. Here we go. We call it The Great Escape, a cutthroat contest for riches and glory. The stakes have never been higher. 
I must summit Mount Kilimanjaro before my rival to win the ultimate prize. But this trip was never about winning to me. By the time we reach the top, I will have the truth if it kills me. The question is, how far will they go? Very, very good. Let's go and talk to Karen now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Karen Hamilton to talk to us about her latest book, The Contest. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Let's start with the basic question. Can you summarise this book for us? The Contest is about two rival travel teams headed by some very travel guides and every year their eccentric boss sets them a task and this year it's to climb Kilimanjaro and the the prizes are in essence riches and glory but of course because this is a thriller (laughs) um, things start wrong on the mountain and we have to we have to figure out what else they need to deal with in order to achieve their ambitions. When you're thinking of writing your next book do you get a scene in your mind and think, right, that's the building blocks and I'll build the book round it? Or does a character present itself to you and you think, oh, they're interesting? What what triggers the start of a book for you? Sometimes it's character, sometimes it's setting. And for me, this time, I very much wanted to set a book within the continent of Africa. I just wasn't sure which country or, or what, but I just felt this sort of yearning. And and then I just thought a couple of my friends have climbed Kilimanjaro and I just thought, how amazing. And I did a lot of research and I actually wanted to go and do it, but then, then COVID hit. So I wondered what it would feel like to be working in a corporate environment where you're under a lot of pressure and then the pressure of then having to climb a mountain as well whilst entertaining your clients, what, what that would feel like. And then I did think again, because of COVID and that, whether to set it somewhere different or to to hold it back. But it just felt like the right time. And I think whatever jobs we've had, whatever environments we've had, whatever we do, I think we could, we've all been in situations in in toxic workplaces where, you know, it, it's, it's very stressful and there's all these characters and sometimes you don't know who to trust and it, it can be. So I just thought it was quite a pressure cooker environment doubly really for my poor characters to (laughs) have to deal with. (laughs) And when you're watching the news or I don't know reality shows as well do those give you ideas or is it more just as you say the different building the elements in your head and getting them ready for a whole book? Yeah it's it's I don't really know where it comes from it sort of it doesn't sort of come as a as a whole thing it it comes as an idea and then I think I'm not sure about that and it's quite intuitive I would say so it's it's all about what feels right and then I don't necessarily what I think I'm going to start writing isn't necessarily how it how it ends up so yeah it's sort of like an on an ongoing process I mean, I am always fascinated, and I think it's a theme that I deal with probably in all my books, is is the person we present ourselves to the outside world and the person you may be behind closed doors. And and actually, to, to, to sort of refer to the reality TV situation, I think it's that thing. It's when you're under pressure, isn't it? How how do you manage that sort of sort of going forward? And I think to explore human nature in all its forms is is what fascinates me because I always think we always say don't we that when there's a news report and someone's you know allegedly committed a, a really terrible crime a lot of the time you'll hear people say but you wouldn't have thought it of them so it's it's that kind of theme very loosely that I try and try and explore 
So with your books, is it a bit like when I put petrol in my car, that it goes up and up and up, and then when it's when it's full, it sort of you get that click noise. Do you do you get that sensation when you think, yeah, th- this this is now a book. I've got enough meat on the bones to make it a book. Yeah. So I'm actually my favourite part of the whole writing process is actually editing. I love it. I could oh. I could I could edit forever. I absolutely love it. I love it when I've got everything down. And then I've got something to work with. I love getting notes from my editor. I absolutely love it because I love looking at them and thinking, okay, right, how can I make this work and and things like that. So for me, that sort of click moment is when I'm editing and then I start changing words, but then I change them back to what they were. And that's for me the point when I know that, that it's done because I think, okay, now I'm changing stuff that doesn't need to be changed. But if I make, if I'm still making changes and feel that there's more than I know I need to keep going. How interesting. Yes, that that makes sense. Did the characters in the contest change as you were writing it or did you get their the cut of their jib from the get-go? I think my first draft, I think it was just from Florence's point of view. And then I decided to bring in Jacob's point of view as well because I it looking back because there were two people and two rivals on this one mountain I felt like you needed to know what was going on with both of them and not just see it from one character's point of view so it's the first book where I've done a dual narrative and a a male and female perspective as well so about as a writer trying to 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 push yourself and do things differently and, and and think about what works and what doesn't yeah that that's kind of how that came about and then the change in of, of Jacob's chapters to third person that came in the editing process as well. So the editing is fruitful, as you say. Yeah, no, I do, do enjoy it. I think you're going to read us a little bit from the beginning of the book, Karen. Oh, is that okay. okay? So this is just a little bit from the prologue. I'm a killer, the wrong fork in the path kind, not the cold-blooded have been planning it for years type. But hindsight is the real torture. In my recurring nightmares... I'm forced to relive the moment when it all went horribly wrong. The last climber was awaiting their turn in the cool darkness below. We caught a flash from their head torch every now and then. Or maybe it was the glowworms. I've repeatedly lied to myself over the passing months. So much so that it's hard to know which of my memories are real. As I ran my hand over the rock, moss brushed my fingers. To our right, daylight shimmered tantalisingly beyond the entrance to the cave calling to me as if it knew how desperate I was for it to be over. That memory is true, I'm sure. A last double check of the ropes. Rope free, a voice echoed. Two words, innocuous enough. Only this time, they were a lie. After, on the ground, only visible by torchlight, was a twisted, terrifyingly still body. Oh, that's brilliant. I love the use of the prologue. Do you find the the prologue helpful to sort of kickstart the story? I think so. I think it's it's for me it's it's a scene that for me alerts something. This is a moment that's that's going to be important at some point, and it's obviously not a great moment because chapter one. Then you then skip into where they're having a lovely time. They're in Nairobi. They're in a lovely hotel. It's all very luxurious. It's all they're on holiday with the, the people of the trap. You know, so it, it is just that immediate contrast because the the prologue's quite short. So it's this this sort of darker scene, and then this. Oh, look, we're all on holiday having a lovely time. (laughs) 
And do you write the prologue literally when you start the book or is this actually something you write later and then slot in? No, I write it. I write it later because, I mean, I know a lot of writers and I wish I could be one of these writers actually, but it doesn't, it's not how my brain works. I know like a lot of writers plan, but for me, I have to start writing and then then the ideas come and then I go back. And if I was a planner, I think I would probably find my life so much easier. But I, I'm not. I'm, for me, it's through through the work and the right writing that it that it comes together for me and my brain. <laughs> How easy is it? Was it to write because it reads so brilliantly? Just obviously, it's not easy to write. But did it feel? How painful was it? I mean, I was nervous again, because I hadn't been to Kilimanjaro and I've never written about stuff that I haven't done. I mean, my, 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 my book before this was set on a cruise and I had to do a lot of research for that, but I did actually manage to go on a mini cruise because that was pre-COVID, just, just across the channel and back. But I still had some idea, whereas with Kilimanjaro, I don't have any idea. The research was really, really important to me. So this was, the first, I mean, I, I, I do more research than I realise for all my books, but this was obviously something I didn't want to get wrong. I kind of immersed myself in the world. So I spoke to a lot of people who climbed it and asked questions like, what did they smell? What did they taste? Things like that. But it was also, I would go to travel companies and, and go into online briefings before the trips and say, this is what, I mean, I still want to do it actually. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I sort of, immersed myself in the world as if it was happening anyway. Watched a lot of YouTube videos and blogs and sort of kept up to date with climbs and, and how they are now. And and I found it a really one of the best books I read actually was by a local guide. And it was just fascinating to me how, you know, that that's what they do, that that, that they carry all these things and, and look after all these people to give them this this life-changing experience. And something that also captured me was that everyone I spoke to said that it changed them. It changed them in a way. And I just thought, what a what a fascinating thing to put to put into that. So I was nervous, I suppose, in as much as I thought, is it okay to write this? But hopefully, hopefully the feedback I have to say I've been really pleased with. So hopefully it, it felt alive to people. I mean, I tried to put in there the things that surprised me as well. Like I was surprised at how busy it could get on the mountain. I hadn't realised how big some of these campsites could be. So I tried to put things that I found surprising and expectations about when you do it and what you don't. And I, that's what I really tried to get from people that I interviewed. And that's interesting when you ask people what they saw, what they, what they could smell, what they could hear. Mm -hmm. Did everyone give pretty much a similar answer or were there, were their answers quite different? No, and that's what was really great, actually, because I was able to pick out the common themes mm. and sort of feel confident putting them in. So the common themes were it was the hardest thing they'd ever done, that it was harder than they thought it would be, that just because you're fit and healthy doesn't mean that the person next to you who might not be quite as fit isn't, do you know what I mean? There's no, it's quite a level playing field, it seems, it was the cold and the tiredness as they got to the top and there's sort of the hallucinations and the feeling sick and yeah, the lifetime experience and other people mentioned the stars, how they felt like they could reach up and grab the stars. So yeah, I went with all, and, and another common thing that came up with people I spoke to was that when you get to the top and you're there, I mean, yeah, it's great, but you're so exhausted. You're not 
you're not hanging around to go, oh, yippee, yeah, I'm going to save for the moment as such. You're a bit like, oh, okay. There's, again, it's quite busy. So you're queuing up to have your photo taken, you're freezing, and then going down is very hard as well. It's very hard on your knees and, it, and going down is harder in a different way. Plus you've got that added exhaustion, but the euphoria obviously helps that a bit. So yeah, those were the common things that I, that I picked up and, and hopefully managed to, to weave in. And do you read similar books to the sort that you write or do you have to read something quite different? I would say 90% of what I read is probably crime thrillers, psychological thrillers. And yeah, I, I, I do read other things, but I have to say they're, they're the genre that I gravitate to. I like a lot of nonfiction as well. So yeah, but I would say, yeah, if I, if I, was, if I walked into a bookstore, I would... I would gravitate towards the ones that kind of said, oh, it's a bit dark, <laughs> a bit dark and deep. <laughs> I'm interested in the actual publishing process because it must be quite a thing to write the book and edit it and get it ready, but then it's published and that must be a, be a different set of nerves and experiences. What's, what's that publishing experience like for you? I mean, the, when my first book came out, I was absolutely terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I was. It, it, it is really frightening. As it as it's gone on, every book's different. Every book's different, but you learn more. And obviously, as I've gone on, I've been fortunate to make friends within the community. So you have that support if you have any sort of concerns and things like that. My agent and editor are both brilliant. I can I can approach them anytime. They're my publicist. I can I can go to them anytime, and they're there to sort of help. But I would I say it's a positive experience overall. I mean, you're always going to be nervous, and you're always going to hope there's going to be more good reviews than bad because that would that would be awful if the book wasn't well received on the whole but then I always think it's it's things to look at what what didn't work why did why did this work and not so much or so I try and I try and learn I try and learn as much as I can sort of going forward I'm sure all the reviews have been very good because it's a good book but I'm sure there's nothing to worry about Thank you. Uh, we come to the final question, Karen, which is the crucial one on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So please prepare yourself. And that is what biscuit powered the writing of the contest? <laughs> oh, I like that question. Oh, it's got to be either a chocolate digestive or a plain digestive. What decides which? Is there a particular mood or uh, having good time yeah. writing or bad time? Yeah, I mean, chocolate's probably the tired one. Digestive's probably like my all-time favourite, just a plain digestive. I haven't got a massively sweet tooth, actually. So I think a digestive for me is just perfect. <laughs> but I like that question. Yeah. <laughs> it's essential, honestly. Biscuits are very important to me. What <laughs> are life's essentials. Yes, well, it's just lovely to talk to you and hear more about the contest. Karen Hamilton, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And now we go to Joe Nothing's Guide to Life by Helen Fisher. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Joe Nathan likes the two parts of his name separate, just like his dinner and dessert. Mean Charlie at work sometimes calls him Joe Nothing, but Joe is far from nothing. Joe is a good friend. He's good at his job, good at making things and good at following the rules. And he's learning how to do lots of things by himself. Joe's mother knows there are a million things in life he isn't prepared for. While she helps guide him every day, she's also writing notebooks full of advice about the things she hasn't told Joe yet, things he might forget, and answers to questions he hasn't yet asked. Following her wisdom, applying it in his own unique way, this part of Joe's life is more of a surprise than he expects because he's about to learn that remarkable things can happen when you leave your comfort zone and that you can do even the hardest things with a little help from your friends. What did I think about this book? I love this book. Helen wasn't even due to come on the podcast, but I read this book and I had to get her on because it's, yeah, it's a it's a lovely book. It's a great book. But anyway, let's talk to her, Helen, and you can hear more about what makes it so special. It is my huge pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Helen Fisher, to talk to us about her fabulous, fabulous, fabulous new book, Joe Nothing's Guide to Life. Helen, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I'm so pleased to be chatting to you again. Well, when I have sat down and read your book, I just thought I've got to talk to you about this and I've got to tell everyone about this book. Let's start with a really basic one. Can you just summarise this book for us? Okay, so Joe Nothing's Guide to Life is really centred around this kind of young gem as a man who has... He's neurodivergent, but we never really specify. He's never really specified what he has, except OCD is mentioned. And he's just making his way in the world. He has a job in a superstore. He's got a mum who really understands the problems and issues that he might face. And she's, she tries to help him with her guidebooks and words of wisdom. And there's a couple of, well, more than a couple of people in the book who kind of form a little community around him. There's Chloe who would fight for him. And, and there's just... It's just a, it's about him as this central character and some of him facing life in his own special way. It's an emotional book to read. Was it an emotional book to write? 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, you've read a proof copy, haven't you? And the hard, mm. it doesn't have the acknowledgements in it, whereas the hardback copy has the acknowledgements in. And in that, I do explain what life was like for me when I wrote Joe Nothing's Guy's Life. And it was, uh, things were not good when your life seems to cave in from every, from every direction. And I've given a lot of thought to how someone like Joe Nothing came out of me during like a really dark period. And actually, although I say Joe is neurodivergent and he is very definitely so, an awful lot of what Joe is, is all the golden nuggets of my children and myself and my friends and the the quirky little things that we do, our own little private conversations, the things we've laughed about, the way that we've, the way that we looked at life. And I think that Joe, when I came to write Joe, it was the only thing that actually, he actually made me feel safe and comfortable. I wanted to be with him when I was writing. The, he, he was the thing that made me feel okay about life while I was typing. And it doesn't often happen like that because I often approach the keyboard with like, oh my girl, I don't know what I'm doing. Whereas I kind of fell into him a bit. It was like a sanctuary. So emotional, I mean, yeah, I've never been in a more emotional state when I've written anything. And so I feel very much, and I, this sounds like a cliche, I think for a reason that it's often true, but this is really the the one time where I felt like Joe Nathan is is my child, is my baby. He's part of everything that I love. And so whilst I have got a thicker skin than I used to about how people feel about things that I write, I want people to love Joe because he's he's mine. And yeah, so it was a, it was very emotional to write, and even more emotional really to hear when people say they love Joe. It's like it's like people saying nice things about your your kids or people that are important to you in your life. And there are particular moments in the book. Where I don't want to give any spoilers, so I just want people to go and read this. But there are moments when I was just like, oh. I know I messaged you once about page 88, I think it was. And there's another time when Joe gives a gift. I won't say any more. It's just extraordinary. And the fact that it was giving you solace at such a difficult time. Books give us solace as readers, but I would have thought it'd be really hard to write when you're going through it. But if it was your escape from everything, that's an incredible thing. Yeah, I don't think it's something that I realised at the time. It was definitely something that I, that sort of, I don't know, you know, when you look back at a part of your life and you start to, it might even be a moment in your life and you analyse it until it makes sense. And all of a sudden this thing that didn't seem like it was happening at the time has a lot of psychology or a lot of reasoning behind it. So I'm not at the time I didn't realise. I'm really, really pleased to hear that you had those moments where you kind of, where they sort of hit you. In the, in the emotion zones because the ones that you mentioned in particular are ones that I gave a huge amount of thought to and I, I do say this for people who want to write if it it doesn't always matter if it doesn't come naturally by which I mean if you need it to be an emotional moment you can work and work and work on it until it becomes a more emotional moment and with each of those things, I was aware that I wanted them to be hard-hitting moments. And they took me longer than other parts to write. I would come back to them 
and make sure that they that they sort of had that impact. I'm really glad that that worked because you don't know if it will or not. I, I mean, he gives a few gifts away in the book, and I oh. think all of them just are true to him. They are wonderful things. I think we all need a Joe Nothing in our life, really. We do, don't we? And I think that I think that the sense that I had when I first wrote it was Joe exists in this world, this very sort of ordinary world, I suppose, just there's a lot of normality to it. And it feels like he needs the help of others in order to stay safe and be protected or just to just to safeguard that vulnerability that he has. And yet I think what happened was it was him that was looking out for lots of people in the end. It was his, they needed him probably as much as he needed them. And I, I again, that that wasn't written sort of on purpose, but I think that that sort of evolves because I think that's just the way life is. You know, it's all very well us being generous with our time and looking after people, but it does something for us, doesn't it, as well? And I should just ask, are you in a better place now? Has writing this book helped you? Oh, I... I must admit that all, all the things that came crashing in that, that I thought this will, oh my God, this will never get better. Um, this will never improve. Yes, each one of them has been resolved, but not without a lot of uh, trial. But thank you so much for asking. And yeah, I really appreciate that. And in fact, when I when I finished Joe Nothing and sent it off, they said, well, I'll sit on it for a month and read it through again. I was like, no, I can't. If you think there's something there, I just can't do anymore. And so I sent it off. And one of the things that was worrying me was that that they wouldn't take the book because I'd written I'd written about two or three that weren't what they want wanted as a follow up to Space Hopper. So one of the things that was getting me down was this was a two book deal, and I just couldn't write the second book that they wanted. And I probably was writing them too quickly. So I'd sit and write and finish a book, and it was like, no, I'd write another one. That's cutting a very long story short, but yeah, so, so each thing resolved, but it took its time. Yeah. Thank so you. is that a case of the second book-itis, the real difficulty? Because Space Hopper was, it was one of my favourite books. I oh, loved it you. so much. And I think more people should be going out reading that book. But sometimes when you do something so incredible, it's really oh. hard to then do something to follow that. That's, that's a lovely thing for you to say. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, because I guess lots of people hear this when they're doing anything, the, the, anything for the second time. It's a bit like we want this, the next thing to be completely different, but have, but be exactly, but have exactly the same impact on people. Or whoever liked Space Hopper may go and read Joe Nothing. It needs to be a different story, but they need to feel the same way. And so the, the books that I wrote in between, I was, I thought, well, this is, this is kind of what I'm doing. This is, I think it's working. I think there's a pressure with a two book deal. It's, it's really lovely to have it when, because it feels like someone's taking a real punt on you and saying, we believe that you can do it. But then you do get a bit stuck if you can't, if you can't produce the goods. And yeah, I, as you said, Joe, nothing, it, it is actually completely different from Space Hopper. But I like to think that 
whilst Space Hopper has, has an element of time travel in which everybody mentions, I also happen to feel it's nothing to do with time travel. It's only to do with how people relate to each other, to do with grief, love, support, friendship, all those things. And I think, I think my novels fall into a genre called uplit, which I had never heard of a few years ago, but which is where serious issues are tackled, but in a way that generally leaves you feeling uplisted. And I quite like being in that genre. I just don't like the fact that when people ask what genre I write, they don't, they've never heard of it. I'd say crime. They're like, I know what you're talking about. Fancy. Yes, I know what you mean. Uplit, they all go. It's just in the genre of being a good book. I think that's the only genre oh, we, that's so we need to talk about. Okay, well, I think this is a good time for you to read us a little bit from the beginning of the book. It's not the prologue, it's chapter one, I believe. Yeah, the prologue is a like a, a big thing in the book, as you know, is advice that comes from Joe's mum. And the prologue is one of those pieces of advice. So I'm just going to leave that and move on and just read about a page of chapter one. Okay. Chapter one, a man of no mean bones. Joe Nathan's mum, Janet, always told him that he didn't have a mean bone in his body. And he was thinking this as he wheeled a trolley of going backs around the store, returning items that had been picked up by customers in one aisle and put down in another. He was certain that candles, for example, felt lost and lonely when they were abandoned among jars of peanut butter or the towels, certain that they were relieved to be reunited with their own candle kind. Joe liked to think that if he were displaced, someone would do the same for him. Joe worked hard to prove his mother right and to try to make other people feel the same way about him. To be considered a man of no mean bones was his raison d'etre. There's a spill on aisle five, said Hugo, putting one hand on Joe's trolley and tilting his head as though he felt bad asking him to clean it up. Are you okay to do it? Joe saluted. Yes, sir. What colour is it? Is it red? It's just milk, and please don't call me sir. I may be old enough to be your father, but only just. If you call me sir, you'll make me feel really old. He whispered the next sentence as though it were a secret. I've always felt a little uncomfortable being the boss. Just call me Hugo. Actually, it's a book to reread because just you reading that first section, more is coming to me than even when I read it the first time. There's these other little gems, especially when you know what happens in the story. So if someone is looking for a book that they can reread quite happily, again, I'd say this is one for them. It's funny you should say that because when I, obviously I've read it a few times, just doing sort of helping with editing and looking for little mistakes and things. When I reread it, I thought, oh, actually that feels quite circular. It is done intentionally, but I'd kind of forgotten about that. And when we were looking at names for the book, one of the names that I really liked, because I just wanted to call it Joe Nothing, I always wanted to just have his name on it. But when we were playing around with ideas, I really wanted to call it the go back because I love the idea of this trolley full of items that need to sort of be put in their place and feel so much better when they find their place. And I feel that there are quite a lot of characters in the book that is referenced quite a bit, that, that they're lost or they need this place to, to be yeah, anyway, don't want to give anything away. No. And the, the book, again, no spoilers, has a particular ending. Was Did you know how it would end when you started or literally because you were just writing your way through your pain that it was the process you were dealing with? Oh, well, that's a really good question because of the way Space Hopper ended because 
I'm not one to blow my own trumpet, but I think Space Hopper's got a really amazing <laughs> yeah, thing. Right? Yeah, So many people have said, I never saw that coming. And when it does, it, it, it makes sense that it got there. But it was, it's quite a twist, the ending. Mm. And I was really proud of it. Now, when I like books that do that, and I like books that end properly, I don't want things left open-ended for me as the reader to work out what's going to happen. So I like to end a book sort of quite definitively. But with Joe Nothing, I knew that I couldn't have a big twist at the end. It's not a big twist book. It's not, it, it wouldn't work and it would be weird and it would spoil the book, I think. But I did want there to just feel like it was tied up in some way. So the answer to your question really is, is actually I didn't know how it was going to, how it was going to end. I had a rough, I had a rough idea that they would, of what would be resolved. Certain things, it's really hard not to give anything away, that they would feel like there was resolution for the majority of characters. But of course, the thing is, as when I was first writing bits and pieces, it was always really tempting just to leave things open-ended and unknown and uncertain because actually that is what life is like. And you sort of think, well, that's what, that's what life's like. We don't know what happens. But as a reader, I don't want that. I'm like, no, 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 tell me what, tell me what you've done. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I was really comfortable in the end with the ending. But again, when I sent it out to see if um, the publisher wanted it, I thought they'd come back and say there isn't this huge at the end. But they were like, no, no, it works. It's okay. How did you feel about the ending? It was, the ending was what the ending should be. And it was right for the book and for Joe, I felt. It was, okay. Yes. Very different to the ending in Space Hopper, but that's right. That I feel you write good books. It's not oh. that you write books with a good ending. So that was fine with me, definitely. Oh, Hearing that you had gone through two or three books in between, that's a huge time frame zapping of your vitality. When you started writing this one, did you know that it was going to be okay? Or was this sort of your last play of the cards and then uh, then you were out? I'm really tempted always to read you like the first part of the acknowledgement because, yeah, this was... This was oh, this do! Was do. But I think the very beginning of the acknowledgements. Okay. I was at rock bottom when I started writing Joe Nappin's Guide to Life. I was on the verge of giving up writing forever and was refusing to take calls or read emails that had anything to do with it. It felt like my life was going wrong in every direction, including the writing. And although I usually like to talk about everything, I no longer wanted to talk about anything. For getting me to talk and for the pivotal conversation that resulted, I would like to thank Claire Hay my UK editor at Simon & Schuster. At the beginning of our meeting, which I reluctantly attended, I believe I felt and behaved something like a sociopathic stray cat, but Claire talked me down with all the finesse and tenderness of a bomb disposal expert and managed to defuse me. By the end of that meeting, I was calmer and a little bit hopeful about writing in the first time in a long time. In a conversational moment that I'm always treasure, Claire told me about her wonderful uncle David. David Hay was a man who shook everyone's hand every time he went into the pub. He reminds me of a character called Joe Nassin, who I'd thought of a couple of years previously. I told Claire about him at that meeting and saw her eyes light up. This was a book that she wanted to read. So that's that's what happened. She 
she, we came into this meeting. She said, how do you feel? I said, well, I won't use the words, but you know, I was not great. And so she said, let's start this conversation in a safe place. And we chatted about books that we liked or didn't like and various other things. And, during, and, and it was just very conversational. And she started talking to me about her uncle David. And I don't know why she was talking about him. And I said, oh, that really reminds me of this, this guy, and he joined nothing. And she said, oh, is that someone you know? And I said, no. And, she said, and I told her a little bit about him. And she said, is that a book that you've read? And I said, no. And she said, a book you've written? And I said, no, it's a book I plan to write. And she said, have you got any notes on it? And I've got this big slip chart that was behind me. And she said, have you got any notes? I went back because it was quite a long way back where I'd done these notes. And I was really surprised. And so was she because there was notes all over the place about these this character's quirks and who he was. And it was nice because I saw her getting closer and closer to the screen going, this is what you should be writing. This is what you should be putting down on paper. So that's what happened. I, I honestly, I was in a terrible place. I just thought, I'm not doing this anymore. I've written three novels. And, and I thought, it's not that they're bad novels. It's just that they're not the right follow-up. But I bumped into one of my beta readers this morning. She reads, I've got a couple of people who read all my early stuff. And she said, do you think they'll never publish? And it, it was a book that I loved and my beta readers loved. And... But they didn't want it. It was too niche. It was not a good follow up. So I, yeah, it was. I was the tank was empty. To be honest. Oh Helen, if I could reach through the screen and give you a big hug, I we would. Have. We're hugging. Yes. Thank you. I admire you so much for carrying okay. on, and it just shows that when things are really dark, that there can be. There can be some light ahead, and yeah, uh, I mean, keep keep going. I mean, you know that I heard that expression when you're in hell, keep going. I think it's Winston Churchill probably. Went, and it, it it is true. You you, what can you do? Really, you've got to just keep going. And if experience has told me any, so I turned fifty one recently, and I thought to myself, all the bad things that have happened in my life, they're you get to, they're, they're, I'm on the other side of them, and when I look back at them. Actually, they were things that resulted in good things. Like, like I think Joe Nathan's guys Earth is a good thing. He, that would not have happened had I not got all those. I'm not saying I'm glad about those rejections. I'm not. I, it was awful. <laughs> but would I ever have written that book in exactly that way? Probably not. So keep going, people. It's, it's hard, isn't it? Just It is. Fun. And it's, it's hard to say, oh, it's worth going through the bad times because something good comes out of it. And it often does. But when you're going through those hard times, yeah. it's the last thing you want to hear. But yeah, you kept going. That's no good at all. Helen, yeah. honestly, I think you're incredible. And I oh, think Thank Joe you. Nothing's Guide to Life is incredible. But we have to end on the question that we ask every author. So prepare yourself. Question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of Joe Nothing's Guide to Life? Oh, that is a good question. It's the same biscuit that powers everything for me, really, although it's evolved. I really like Nairn. Has you heard of Nairns? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, oat cakes and things. Yeah, they're like oat cake things, but they've got biscuit versions. They're my favourite, so I give them to people. They eat them like, oh. <laughs> I don't really like that, but I love it. And they do say, so, yeah, I like the chocolate ones of those. And they are, they're just, they're really, they're high fibre and they're, what I like about them is because I, I hate it when I eat and I don't feel satisfied because I just want to keep eating. I don't mind keeping eating, but I just want something that makes me go, I've eaten that and I'm full. And they now do these chocolate, the really, uh, really chunky ones. They're like, 
I don't know what they're called, but they're like bars. They're like a biscuit bar. Yeah, it's making my mouth water a little bit, actually. And when I've had both of them, I actually feel quite... I like There's two in a pack of the chunky ones. I feel quite stuffed, so I like that. Well, wonderful to talk to you, Helen, and hear more about Joe Nothing's Guide to Life. Just thank you so much. Um, I'm so glad that you read it and loved it. It's really lovely to hear your thoughts on it, and you're, you're really kind about it, so thank you. Thanks for loving Joe, because I love him. Hmm. Well, there we go. Those are your two author interviews, but don't go yet because we've got book reviews coming up as well. And the first one is called The First 48 Hours by Simon Koenig. Here is the description. The first 48 hours are critical and the clock is ticking. A cop needs to crack a deadly case. He's a detective hunting cold-blooded killers. But does he know more than he admits? A mother has to save her daughter. She's a lawyer who must defend a murderer. But how far will she go to protect her only child? A couple will commit the perfect crime. They have a plan, but can they trust each other with their lives? Three stories, two days. Does one secret connect them all? What did I think about this book? I picked it up and I just read it. I didn't even read that blurb, actually. I just saw on the cover it said, the first 48 hours will decide if you live or die. I like a lot of Simon's books. I just thought, yeah, I'm going to read it. And read it, I did. And enjoy it, I did. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good. It kept me guessing. There were moments when I was like, well, hang on, what, what's going on there? And I had to go back and like, oh my goodness, yes. And it just kept me reading. I'd actually gone to the point of taking my phone into another room and leaving it there so that I couldn't scroll while reading it. And I'm so glad I did because I was just able to sit down and just read. I'm finding it very hard these days. I don't know about you, but I literally have to put my phone in another room. But anyway, I really enjoyed that book. And now we come to The Kill by Jane Casey. This is part of the Maeve Kerrigan series. Um, I've read many others. I don't know what number this one is. Is it number six? Let me have a quick look. No, it's book five. It's book five. And it's brilliantly uh, narrated by Caroline Lennon as well. Let me read you the summary. Their job is to fight crime. Now they are the victims. A killer is terrorising London and this time the police are the targets. Urgently reassigned to investigate a series of attacks on fellow officers, Maeve Kerrigan and her boss, Josh Derwent, have little idea what motivates the killer's fury against the force, and they know it will only be a matter of time before the killer strikes again. I absolutely loved it. Listen, as I say, listen to it on audiobook. I had a long drive to London, and normally I find I have to listen to music because I just can't focus enough on the book. I don't know why it is, but I was so into the book. My watch told me I'd had a really good sleep. <laughs> Because my heart rate was so, I think, so slow and controlled, just listening, just immersed in this book while driving. I was driving properly, don't I, you know, but it just goes to show what sometimes you can just get into it. And yeah, I listened to it. I finished. It was an eight hour drive. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Can't wait to read or listen to the next book in the series. Absolutely brilliant. If you like crime books, then I would really recommend it. And then the final one I listened to was One Foot in the Grave by David Renwick. Now, I used to watch this on television. We're going back many a year. But I always, I found it funny because there's Victor Meldrew. Who's it? Well, let me read you the sort of the, the summary. Crabby, crusty and curmudgeonly he may be. 
But Victor Meldrew, played brilliantly by Richard Wilson, voices the exasperation of the once silent majority. Accompanied by his long-suffering wife Margaret, played by Annette Crosby, Victor's howlingly funny battles against what he perceives as modern-day ills have turned him into one of the greatest comic creations of our time. This collection gathers six of the best TV episodes. You've got Alive and Buried, which is really when it starts and he's made redundant. Then you've got Timeless Time, A Night When They Can't Sleep. Um, you've got In Luton Airport, No One Can Hear You Scream when they return from their holiday. The Beast in the Cage, which is there in a bank holiday traffic jam. The Man in the Long Coat, which is, well, it follows on from a garden gnome incident. Uh, the Broken Reflection, when he's acting as a neighbourhood vigilante. And then The Trial, uh, when he's been selected for jury service. I love listening to it because it's very comforting. It's one of those times, you know, it just takes you back to watching them. There were some parts I just thought were hilarious and still stand the sort of things that you get irate about. I hadn't remembered, though, that there were some really serious subjects dealt with and some really sad moments, really upsetting moments. So it was a more rounded drama than I remember. But I just... I enjoyed it. Would I get if there were more available, would I get them? No, because I got it to laugh and I just at times thought, oh my goodness, that's really sad or really awful. So I wouldn't get more. But I did really enjoy them. So I'd, whatever that however we conclude that, who knows? But anyway, I've waffled enough. I need to send you on your way. Let me just recount the books I've talked about today. I've talked about The Contest by Karen Hamilton. I've talked about Joe Nothing's Guide to Life by Helen Fisher. I've also reviewed The First 48 Hours by Simon Koenig, The Kill by Jane Casey, and One Foot in the Grave by David Renwick. Those are your books. I just hope you're doing okay. I hope you're all right. Just look after yourself. Sending you a very big hug down your headphones or your whatever you're listening to this on. Just, just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.